you've got to deliver savings. The reason most companies are doing GBS is to deliver real savings to the bottom line. But you also need it as a GBS leader because you got to drive savings to reinvest back into new capabilities. Welcome to the GBS Masterminds podcast, the one and only platform for global business service leaders to share their experiences of building world-class shared service organizations. My name is Sashi Narakari, founder and CEO of iRadius, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm honored to host Andy Walter, a business leader with 35 plus years of experience in IT, shared services, and business advisory. Andy is the CEO of AJW Advisory and the former SVP of Shared Services and IT at Procter & Gamble. Andy is passionate about the future of GBS and actively participates in influencing the GBS community with advanced transformation ideas. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Super excited to be part of your podcast. Andy, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career journey? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I was uh, 26 years with Procter & Gamble and literally worked in every part of P&G's business areas from R&D to supply chain. I was the CIO and shared services leader of our European business. And then for the last decade, since 2003, I was part of our GBS journey at Procter & Gamble. Uh, I was specifically responsible for all commercial shared services. So everything we did really on the front office of analytics transformation, e-business, digital marketing, and the like. As you mentioned, I retired in 2016 to pursue more work kind of doing board and strategic advisory across a host of disruptive innovators like Hyradius. So super excited to be part of this. And the journey over the last five years has only solidified my belief that GBS is absolutely critical to the future of companies. Exciting career, Jenny, Andy, and good to see you on the advisory side. So I'm now going to ask you the $6 million questions that are most debated in the GBS world. Let me start with the first one. The first one is around captive center model versus outsourcing. Andy, as you have expertise in driving value-driven partnerships and have been creating a strategic partnership model, would you recommend outsourcing over captive centers for deploying shared services? I'm a big supporter of outsourcing with strategic partners. And it's with strategic partners that's critical. What I found over my time is it is critical to driving value, scale, and agility and speed. You know, a big part of our success as we were, you know, transforming PNG's digital and analytics was finding kind of a hybrid model, which allowed us to, you know, get a hold of talent and leverage talent and scale up capabilities much, much faster than we could have done if we were on our own. So the outsourcing was a big part of that. You know, the the keys to the outsourcing, though, for us were really threefold. One is you need to know what you're doing before you ask others to help you do it. You know, so that outsourcing, I see lots of folks making mistakes going too quick without understanding what they're really trying to do. Second is pick strategic partners. I had no vendors at P&G. I only had strategic partners and, and partners that really wanted to drive this. And then last, you need partners that are going to be able to bring disruptive innovation, you know, to your business, to your GBS model. So it's, and I'll tell you what, this talent hybrid model that I talk about is even more critical now because now getting access to talent is even tougher than ever before. So outsourcing again with strategic partners, absolutely key. 
very interesting. I think the extra dimension of we are in a talent war and we cannot take that for granted. So whichever is a strategic partner who can actually bring the great, amazing talent could be a differentiator. Sashi, I always wanted my top people working with the top people for my strategic partners together as one team. So yeah, exactly to your point. All right. We'll go to the next million dollar question. Harmonize and standard first versus lift and shift. Andy, what would be your advice on process transition standardize and then a lift and shift or maybe the, the other way? How would you do it? Yeah, no, I and I was probably uh, different than most. I've seen both. I've seen both work. But for speed, I prefer lift and shift. You know, again, back to the strategic partnerships. What's critical for me, though, whether you're doing lift and shift or you're trying to transform in place and standardize is make sure the four critical pieces are there. So first, you know, when you're thinking about this, the people running the processes need to move. Second, the business process ownership, owning those business processes and the ability to transform those business processes need to be owned by you in GBS as part of that. Third, the technology to run those business processes has got to move with it. And then lastly, and the thing that a lot of people forget is the ownership of the budget, you know, the accountability to deliver the savings, but also the ability to reinvest some of that savings back into capabilities is absolutely critical. What I find is if those four vectors are not met, you know, you should be running like hell the other way, you know, because you do not want to lift and shift and you're not going to be in a position to standardize and transform at all. Very good one. Actually, the four pieces is very interesting way to look at it, especially the two pieces of the budget and accountability and technology is something we cannot take it for granted. And it, if as a GBS leader, you have to deliver business outcomes and control your destiny, these are two aspects that you want to have direct control over. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Since I've retired from P&G, I've been advising some other Fortune 500s on their journey. And if you don't have all four of these elements kind of in place, you know, you can spin your wheels for years. You know, I was working with one large Fortune 500. They had been doing, at best, shared operations for five, six years. And when we came in and really kind of focused into these four, they're making incredible progress now. And then it seems like in this case, the CIO's office for the tech component is a pretty critical piece of the pie or the, or the game to make sure that you can transform, right? How, how do you see that? This is super critical. You know, in, in the case of that Fortune 500 I was talking about, the shared service folks did not have accountability for the technology. So they couldn't make any changes, you know, so there was no way they were going to transform this. So part of the model we put in place was the shared services and IT leadership came together. They recruited a top talent CIO. GBS was reporting to that CIO. And now they had accountability for all four of those elements and they could make the technology transformations they needed to you know, deliver the savings, drive value, all those type of things. So yeah, those two have got to be together. If they're not together, it, it's not going to work. Absolutely. All right. So the third million dollar question is around RPA. The technology of RPA is fairly popular versus foundational platforms. What has been your experience on, on robotic process automation? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So on, on the RPA side, first of all, I believe automation is critical. Unfortunately, most of the RPA I've seen to date is not enterprise ready. And what do I mean by that? So, so much of the RPA that folks are trying to do right now is script-based, it's screen scraping, it's prone to not handling changes going on and leads to a mess, leads to a lot of maintenance, leads to a lot of operating issues. 
What I think folks really have got to focus on as you think about this automation is model-based and AI-based autonomous automation as part of those critical business process solutions that you're using. You know, at P&G, we were using AI-based automation to determine product launch in different areas like that. I've seen world-class SaaS companies like Tricentis use it for model-based testing automation. And I know Radius is on this journey too, you know, of, of leveraging AI-based automation as part of receivables and treasury processes. Again, so I'm not a big fan of the traditional RPA players. What I like is folks that are really looking at AI to drive that autonomous automation that enterprise-ready companies have got to have. Absolutely. And we are seeing that a lot too. Like RPA is sometimes good for like a small process, but you're actually building and owning the code. Even though you don't write code, it's a low-code platform. And then it, it's a bit brittle, but you're owning custom code for as a piecemeal versus yes. transforming an entire process. I think there is some yes. trends emerging in terms of the limitations. Yeah, and as you start changing the processes, everything starts breaking. You know, so you you know what I'd rather have is that AI base right in the transformational capabilities that I'm working on. All right, fourth million dollar question, Andy, is from taking GBS from cost cutting to revenue driver. What are your views on transforming to like a revenue growth instrument? Yeah, this is a challenge I hear from a lot of GBS leaders because they're they're stuck. They're stuck in the cost cutting mode. And they haven't been able to move to the revenue growth or value drivers. And you need both. You know, so first and foremost, you've got to deliver savings. The reason most companies are doing GBS is to deliver real savings to the bottom line. But you also need it as a GBS leader because you got to drive savings to reinvest back into new capabilities. You know, so for me, you know, I first moved into GBS in 2003, and it was a bit unusual because we had already created credibility at P&G in the back office, and I was asked to run the front office GBS services. So I was asked to start up marketing services for our thousands of brands and business units around the world. And it was about delivering savings. We, we knew we could deliver savings, but it was also around bringing these capabilities to 20 plus categories and regions and accelerating capabilities that are gonna grow the business like digital business, uh, e-commerce and things like that. So I, I think, again, you got to focus on the savings. You got to deliver that. That's core. Your CFO is expecting it. But then you got to get the room to then and the credibility to then start focusing on the revenue driving capabilities as well. Awesome. See, it almost seems like ultimately it all boils down to you have to start with the cost takeout, prove yourself, build a brand, and then the, the, the transformation and the revenue set will naturally come to you. Yeah. And you need to build a partnership with the other C-suite leaders. You know, so when I was doing the marketing services capability, I was partnering with the CMO. You know, you need to partner across those C-suite leaders. And then you need to find, you know, back to your your other $6 million questions, strategic partners that can help you on that journey as well. Because when you start getting into the front office and the commercial services, you need to run at the speed of your business. So there's no longer the ability to move slow. You got to move fast, and and having those right leaders, both in the partners and in your leadership team internally, is critical. You bet. All right, million dollar question number five: Core ERP versus modern SaaS platforms. Andy, as you know, SAP and Oracle tend to be the default core ERP, and then companies have invested a lot in this stack over the last ten to twenty years. How do you do the trade-off of that? and expand that versus niche software platforms like Workday, Coupa, High Radius, generally debated in the GBS 
community. What is your viewpoint on this? Well, you know, in my personal opinion, the greatest transformation to happen in the last decade are these modern SaaS platforms. The enterprise level companies have, you know, we're kind of trapped by these giant monolithic systems. And we were not able to take advantage of significant value and transformation opportunities. So the journey, I mean, if you take P&G, we started our SAP journey back in the 1990s. So I was in a, a manufacturing site rolling out the first SAP R3. And it was one giant monolithic system. Everything we did from M&A to business process transformation, we had no choice. It was forced to be in there. But literally over the last decade with these cloud-based SaaS platforms and the ability to put best-in-class capabilities you know, in unison with your ERP investment has been absolutely critical. So this is probably one of the number one topics I talk about as I talk about digital transformation with CIOs, GBS leaders, chief analytic officers. It's that ability to use these things in unison and take best in class coming from these disruptive innovators with SaaS platforms and leverage it within your core ecosystem and your stack. Very interesting. In fact, like it's, you mentioned the 90s, so it's kind of like a little bit of nostalgic for me. I started my career as an ABAP developer in the SAP in the 90s as well. So the world has changed a lot in 20 years. It's unbelievable. One, building on that, I mean, you think about the how we had to do M&A in this monolithic is crazy. You know, so now, you know, with companies buying and selling assets, these cloud-based processes also facilitate that at an extremely fast speed, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. All right. The last but not the least, the closing question. Andy, what would you like to leave your listeners with some parting advice? I thought about this one a lot, and you really need to build your network of disruptive innovators and advisors right now. I admit I started too late in my career getting externally focused and identifying disruptive innovators that could help create even more value at P&G. Sashi, I'll be very transparent. In the last two years at P&G, I think I created more value than the previous eight combined. And it's because I started focusing externally, looking at who were these disruptive innovators and how could they help us on this journey and driving that. So do that and build your network now. You bet. All right. Actually, I have one other question. I know that Andy, you're writing a book. I'm super excited for you and waiting to be one of the early readers. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I well, appreciate you asking. So yeah, I've, I've been on this incredible journey as you kind of you know talked from the beginning of you know 26 years with one of the greatest companies in the world doing enterprise level you know IT and technology, and then over the last five years working with these disruptive innovators. So so the book is going to be a little bit about this journey of working for one Fortune 500 to now working across the portfolio or a plural career of disruptive innovators. And what I'm finding kind of on my journey, and it's becoming very relevant for a lot of folks that I'm helping think about the journey as well, is your personal brand and that network I talked about is so critical to releasing value right now at the company you're at right now, but it also sets up the future. So that's where we're going to go into it. And uh, I'm also excited that you know 100% of the proceeds are going to go to the Ovarian Cancer Alliance of Greater Cincinnati. So I hope it'll be a good book and it'll be a, for a great cause. You bet. All right. Andy, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you. It was a delight to have you on the GBS Masterminds today. I appreciate the invitation, Sashi. That was the GBS Masterminds podcast. 
For more information, visit gbsmasterminds.com and make sure to search for GBS Masterminds in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at High Radius, thanks for listening.